Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Thank you for listening to the Bowery Boys podcast. If you like the show, please rate and write a review on Apple Podcasts. Episode 373 of the Bowery Boys, New York Underground, the story of cemeteries. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today we're looking into the history of cemeteries and burial grounds in New York. It's, it's a story that we think will change your relationship with New York City itself. Cemeteries and burial grounds are everywhere. Although mm. by design, we often don't see them or interact with them in daily life. But they're actually omnipresent. You see them while strolling through the East Village or out your taxi window headed to LaGuardia Airport. And if you live in Queens, you probably see them in your neighborhood. But fear not, this is not a sad story or even really a creepy one, but rather an epic tale of urban growth. This is a story today of real estate. It's a story of architecture and parks featuring some of the city's most beautiful historical landmarks. Today, there are more than 55 cemeteries in New York's five boroughs, although there used to be double that number in Lower Manhattan alone. And that is our story today. Where were early New Yorkers buried? And what happened to them as the city grew? And so many of those cemeteries had to move. And like so many living New Yorkers, they moved to Brooklyn or Queens. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is truly a remarkable statistic. There are more than 5 million people buried in Queens today, okay? That is more than twice the borough's living population. Calvary Cemetery alone has more than 3 million burials. So, if you haven't figured it out already, this is more than a story of reverent spaces scattered throughout the city. This is the story of New York City itself, about its growth, its history, its versatility, and its life. We'll be starting today in Dutch New Amsterdam and taking this saga all the way up to the present day. So join us as we plot the story of cemeteries and burial grounds in New York. So, Tom, let's go back to the very beginning here, because we've spent almost 15 years of this podcast talking about how New Yorkers have lived. Today, we're going to talk about how New Yorkers buried their dead. So let's start the story from the very beginning, back in Dutch New Amsterdam. How were people buried in the 17th century? Well, generally speaking, during the New Amsterdam days and the colonial period, most people in New Amsterdam or New York were buried in the churchyards where they attended church, or they were buried in a public burial ground, uh, usually if they couldn't afford that, or some were even buried in their own backyards. It's really not terribly surprising because New Amsterdam, and after the 1660s, New York was a new settlement, really, relatively speaking, and there was plenty of space. 
Yes, churches actually had lots of space. Church yards were much, much larger than those that we see today walking around New York. The churchyards themselves were less populated. There had been fewer internments, of course. But in many cases, the properties were also larger back then than what exists still today. But most of the burial grounds that were actually in New York at this time, most of them do not exist today. Right, because, you know, most of those early churches have disappeared, and so too have their churchyards. The same holds for the public burial grounds. For example, there was a public burial ground of New Amsterdam in New York in Lower Manhattan that was established in 1662. Trinity Church, in fact, would be constructed just south of it, touching its property in 1698, and then this public burial ground would be incorporated into the northern section of Trinity's churchyard. And that was just a public burial ground. The churchyard of the Reformed Dutch Church was active in the 1620s. Its churchyard was located all the way down to today's 27 Broadway. The church itself was actually located inside Fort Amsterdam. And of course, that's no longer around. No, long gone. And this churchyard then would be divided up and lots sold off in the 1670s. And so that's just, you know, sort of kicking off a tradition then in the city of cemeteries, falling into disrepair and being sold off and redeveloped. But can we go back to Trinity Churchyard? Because this is actually a place that is still amazingly around today. Yes, Trinity Church was chartered in 1697. The first church was constructed the next year in 1698 at Wall Street and Broadway, facing the Hudson River, because there wasn't so much landfill, uh, and the river wasn't very far off. So the, the church had a river view. And the churchyard sort of ambled down toward the river. And I mentioned that just to its north was the city's public burial ground, which the church took control of in 1703. So for so many decades, you know, through the colonial era, past the Revolutionary War, and into the beginnings of the New Republic, Trinity Church and its churchyard were really the center of New York, was really the heart of everything going on. Yeah, and that is a notable feature of this churchyard at the time, right? That the family of a deceased person had easy access to their grave. They might walk by it on Broadway daily. That was just kind of like a fact of living in New York. And actually, as the churchyard became more crowded, some found it a bit disturbing. In an 1896 book called Walks in Our Churchyards, published by Trinity Parish, the author mentions how a visitor from London in 1807 was made uncomfortable by this, calling these graves, quote, unsightly exhibitions. Quote, one would think that there was a scarcity of land in America to see such large pieces of ground in one of the finest streets of New York occupied by the dead. But the author here, and Trinity Parish, took issue with that statement pointing out instead the benefits of burying loved ones right there in the middle of the action. They wrote, quote, The dead have company here. The feet of the living pass up and down the street hard by, and among those footfalls are those of descendants of the quiet ones, of men who admired their record and women who love their memory. They are sleeping, too, in the shadows of the homes in which they lived and were happy. The roar of business is around them as they knew it in life. And once a week comes the quiet of the Sunday they observed. We should note that Trinity Church itself has a rather tumultuous history. It actually burns down at one point. The current Trinity Church opened in 1846. But even back in the colonial era, Trinity was expanding all through the city and was opening parishes all over the place, including St. Paul's Chapel, which is just a few blocks north. Yes, St. Paul's would open in 1766. And in the 18th century, according to the Trinity book, St. Paul's Churchyard would actually slope down behind it to the pebbled shore of the Hudson which is an incredible thought. And its churchyard would see the, the burials of several Revolutionary War officers. As we progress here into the 1770s, of course, the city's population is getting larger, which means, you know, that 
the cemeteries themselves are getting a little bit more crowded. Indeed they were, and this was made more dramatic after the Revolutionary War, uh, when the war dead were packed into the churchyards, especially Trinity Church on Wall Street. According to the book The Graveyard Shift, A Family Historian's Guide to New York City Cemeteries, author Carolee Inskeep writes, In May of 1784, Trinity decided to prohibit all burials in the graveyard, except for those families who already owned a burial vault. The church noted that due to the great number of internments during the Revolutionary War, it had become difficult to dig a new grave without unearthing another body. Many bodies were interred less than three feet under. So the churchyard at Trinity accounts for many of the burials for so many Episcopalians, but there are many different ways of worshipping in New York at this period. There are Dutch Reformed worshippers, Lutherans, and even Jewish New Yorkers. Each with their own cemeteries, although Trinity was open to other faiths, uh, Lutherans could also be buried there. However, a Jewish congregation, Sharif Israel, operates the second oldest extant cemetery in New York, today called the Chatham Square Cemetery, which is located at 55 St. James Place in Chinatown. That land for the cemetery was purchased by the congregation in 1682, and its first interment occurred the next year in 1683. It's even mentioned in a letter to General George Washington in 1776. It's referred to as the, quote, Jews' burying ground in a letter to him. And it would remain active into the 1820s, after which point the congregation would move, the burial ground would move farther uptown. The size of the cemetery here would be dramatically reduced in 1855 when the Bowery was expanded by the city, cutting into the burial ground and forcing the relocation of 256 bodies. But as the city is getting more diversified here, where are Black New Yorkers, most of whom were enslaved during this period? Up until the late 1600s, they could be buried in the city's public burial ground. However, when Trinity took over the operation of this burial ground in 1703, they introduced a new rule that expressly forbade blacks from being buried here in the burial grounds, in in the parish's churchyard or the public one that they were running. They could only be buried outside the city's limits in a, quote, Negro's burial ground, which was located just north of Chambers Street and west of the Collect Pond around today's Foley Square. This cemetery would remain active throughout the 18th century, with an estimated 15,000 people buried here. And by the time of the Revolution, about one-fifth of New York's population was black, nearly all of them enslaved. This burial ground then would remain active until the city closed it in 1794. But even these bodies were often not at rest. In the winter of 1788, bodies started to go missing in the African burial ground, as well as in other burial grounds, including the city's old public burial ground next to Trinity Churchyard. In the dark of night, invaders would hit the dirt hard with their shovels, quickly flinging aside the dirt to reach the coffins and run off with the remains of recently buried New Yorkers. But this wasn't blackmail. These vandals were not demanding ransoms for the return of these bodies. These grave robbers were medical students who were procuring bodies in really the only way possible for them in order to dissect them, to study anatomy and learn about the human body. Grave robberies were especially frequent during the coldest months, when the bodies decomposed more slowly, leaving more time for their study. It was a practice that New Yorkers found chilling, but chose to ignore at first. After all, most of the bodies taken were from the African burial ground, or were the city's poorest white residents. At first, members of the black community petitioned the Common Council to help guard their burial ground. They were ignored. However, after the body of a white woman was stolen from the ground of Trinity Churchyard in February 1788, 
the public became alarmed. They became further inflamed, according to one story, in April, when a group of children playing near New York Hospital witnessed a severed arm during a dissection. And according to the story, the medical student, John Hicks, picked up the arm and waved it at the children, claiming that it belonged to one of their recently deceased mothers. The children screamed, ran home, and soon a group of men exhumed the coffin of the poor deceased woman, only to find it empty. Soon, mobs wielding picks and shovels attacked the hospital and found corpses in various stages of decomposition, which infuriated them further. And as doctors and students tried to stop them, anatomical collections and specimens were tossed from windows and dragged to the streets. Mayor Duane had to enter the fray to calm the crowds and locked up the students and doctors in the city's jail for the night just to protect them. The next day, an even larger mob was back at it, attacking and ransacking Columbia College, even pushing aside Alexander Hamilton, who was just trying to calm them in front of the college. They swarmed upon the jail, increasing to a mob of 5,000 angry New Yorkers, which turned violent as a guard fired upon a rioter and violence erupted. In the end, up to 20 people died in these clashes. The reputation of the medical profession and medical training took a hit following this doctor's riot of 1788. The next year in 1789, New York State Legislature passed laws to prevent grave robberies and human dissection, but in order to help medical research permitted the dissection of executed criminals. But what will happen to these old burial grounds in the 19th century? We'll further explore the saga of cemeteries in New York after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery+. Plus. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one-year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. 
I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. So in the 1790s, an even greater crisis emerged in New York involving its burial grounds. And that would be disease, which arrived in the port of New York that decade, bringing deadly yellow fever outbreaks, which taxed the city's medical resources during the summers. Thousands of people died in New York when the fever reached epidemic levels in the city from 1795 to 1803. And these epidemics changed New York in so many ways. I guess one positive thing to come out of this would be the development of certain medical institutions, like the founding of Bellevue Hospital. It also created a morbid demand for more burial space, and in particular, space that was further outside the city limits. Uh, So in 1797 the city purchased a swampy plot of land about two and a half miles from Wall Street, purchased it for $4,500, and made that area a burial ground. This plot was near Mineta Creek, which ran through the village of Greenwich, and was probably chosen because it actually sat near a couple of other churches and their respective churchyards. And as regular listeners will probably know by now, you're speaking about today's Washington Square Park, which is such a lovely, vibrant place today. But even here, when when it's created as a potter's field in 1797, yes, it was outside the city's limits, but there were still people around. There were country estates. There was the village of Greenwich just next to it. Did these people complain about this new potter's field being being created here? Yeah, there were many complaints from the few wealthy residents that lived around here. They even hired lawyer Alexander Hamilton, Hmm. pops into the story here again, to represent their cause to the city and begging to place this burial ground in another part of the island. Not in my backyard. Their pleas, however, were denied. And so for 30 years, until the year 1827, this place became the city's main potter's field for paupers and out-of-towners who died, joining those of all classes who perished in these yellow fever epidemics. So what happened in 1827? Well, by the 1820s, the city was growing rapidly northward, and it didn't do to have this large burial ground taking up so much valuable real estate. And so in 1827, it was declared a public space and transformed into the Washington Military Parade Ground, named, of course, for George Washington. The transformation soon had the desired effect of raising the real estate values around the park. And soon, new wealthy people came in and flocked to build their homes around the perimeter. And it wasn't just wealthy residents, because in 1833, uh, the school, which would become New York University, was also founded here. Uh, So there would be students about. But what about the bodies that had been buried here? Well, they exhumed some of the bodies and removed them to other potter's fields in the city, but not all, as we shall see. But no such care was taken for another significant burial ground, the burial ground that you mentioned that was historically known as the Negroes' burial ground. That area was completely built over. In some cases, structures with basements and cellars simply discarding the excavations during the construction phase without any kind of ceremony whatsoever. 
And today we would consider this a desecration, right, in both cases, uh, when development just occurs right on top of these burial grounds without any accommodation provided for the burials. But this really just underscores how rapid and uncontrolled the growth in the city was by this time. In 1820, there were about 100 cemeteries in Manhattan, a quarter of them in lower Manhattan. But now that land was much too valuable. And with the grid plan, you would have former country cemeteries that had all sorts of land around it now being hemmed in with the creation of new streets and avenues. Church cemeteries like that of St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, for instance, which was the burial ground for the Stuyvesant family, that was severely reduced with many bodies exhumed and moved elsewhere so the church could then fit this very specific grid. But as more and more New Yorkers then were packing into these blocks, right, these new Mm -hmm. blocks carved up in the land, they were packing into homes just next to these cemeteries. Yeah. Didn't this new sort of density and proximity to cemeteries, did that make New Yorkers nervous at all? It made many people very uncomfortable. There was even this widely held belief that dead bodies poisoned the air, the so-called miasma theory, that dead things created a noxious, billowing fume that caused asphyxiation and spread disease. Because it was believed that such vapors traveled more efficiently at night, in fact, many people who lived around cemeteries during this period often closed their windows when they went to sleep, lest the poison actually seep into their homes. How eerie and unscientific, right? I mean, not based on modern science. Although there were other unpleasant aspects, including odors that came out of the cemeteries. Yeah, and this was an unfortunate reality. In fact, it created a panic in the 1820s as the population really started to grow here. In 1822, the city banned burials at Trinity Church Cemetery, and the following year, they banned all burials below Canal Street. However, in the 1830s, when we had many wealthy New Yorkers who still desired some kind of a local plot for their families, well, for the moneyed classes, two so-called private non-sectarian marble cemeteries were developed in the area of today's East Village. And Believe it or not, both of these places are still around and very close by each other. Uh, The 1830 New York Marble Cemetery on 2nd Avenue between 2nd and 3rd, and in the 1831 New York City Marble Cemetery on 2nd Street between 1st and 2nd Avenue. And we have walked by these beautiful cemeteries in the East Village so many times. But what makes a marble cemetery different from these other burial grounds? Well, the marble in the name, Marble Cemetery, derives from the marble vaults, which are placed below ground. And it was believed that marble was effective in sealing these burials so that this so-called miasma would not seep into the atmosphere. So these would then be safer and healthier ways to bury people, but obviously at a price. These were costly burials. This was clearly not a solution for all New Yorkers. Not a long-term solution, no. In fact, the city would continue to ban burials on the island of Manhattan gradually over the decades. The solution for a growing metropolis would actually arrive from Europe in the form of the rural cemetery. Now, I don't mean rural as in like cows and farms, but more Mm. the idea of a countryside destination that was many miles from an urban border and often employed the land's natural topography. The rural cemetery movement allowed for larger and theoretically endless amounts of land in places of natural beauty that allowed for respect, proper contemplation, and even, as we'll see, a little bit of recreation. So this is a new, much more picturesque option right out in the Mm -hmm. countryside. And it conjures up an image, too, of like Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris, which opened in 1804, which is a beautiful sort of respite, right? Uh, Even though Paris has developed all around it, 
you can still enter and be in a totally different place. Mm-hmm. Uh, Père Lachaise actually is considered the very first rural cemetery in the world. Did you know? Um, oh. You know, it was lush and natural, but more importantly, it was a non-religious burial site. It essentially removed the cemetery from the churchyard. The first rural cemetery in the United States was Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which opened in 1831 and catered to the needs of the nearby population of Boston. Now, it should be noted that the cemetery was formed not by a church, but by a horticultural society with privately owned lots that were sold essentially like real estate. It was designed to be a destination, a pleasurable place of impressive monuments and garden-like beauty at a time when the natural areas surrounding cities at this moment were beginning to disappear to mass development. So this is kind of a way of creating new park space, right? Um, At a time when there were not that many public parks. And it's also conservation. So then how did this idea of the rural cemetery arrive in the New York area? Well, in 1834, so three years after the opening of Mount Auburn, the former town and village of Brooklyn received its city charter from the state of New York. And so its leaders were looking for ways to accumulate land to plan and develop new streets and perhaps find a way to even compete with the city of New York across the water. Eventually, the city purchased 178 acres of farmland in the area of what was then called Gowanus Heights on a former Revolutionary War site. Now, on this absolutely breathtaking vista, the rural cemetery known as Greenwood Cemetery was incorporated in 1838, taking a few years, of course, to develop into this really this one-of-a-kind cemetery of rolling hills and lush foliage to become, as Harper's Weekly would later publish, quote, the largest and most beautiful burial place on the continent. Today, it's far larger, 478 acres. And with today hundreds of thousands of burials. And given the nature and the beauty, there's just a different kind of reverence taking place here. Previously, loved ones were buried on religious sites or in private family-owned vaults or, of course, the less fortunate, meager and disrespected potter's fields. But at Greenwood, there was something open and grand here. If you were coming here to bury someone that you loved, you were most likely leaving the density of New York City and coming to fresh air and greenery, the closest place, really, that you could get to a natural paradise at this time. Greenwood allowed for longer and more pleasant visits. Soon, it wasn't just mourners who came to Greenwood. The experience was so rewarding that people even came to picnic here and to spend the day. But it wasn't only the nature that was drawing these people to to Greenwood. Oh, no, Greenwood had more to offer than that because it was basically... New York's largest art museum. Rural cemeteries allowed, even encouraged, monumental displays of remembrance and grief. You know, tombstones had once been very simple and modest, but now very wealthy people could now hire New York's rich trove of artists and craftspeople to make monuments of a fabulous size. The overall result mirrored the subjects of mid-19th century American paintings with marble statuary and mausoleums, often resembling ancient architecture, peering out from vines and tree branches. The administrators of Greenwood themselves even got into the act, installing a cathedral-like gateway and clock tower in 1861, designed by the king of American church architecture himself, Richard Upjohn. It's so beautiful, and the memorials are just too really numerous to even list off right now. But I will point out that Henry Berg, the founder of the ASPCA, whom I recently spoke about on a show on animal rights, was interred here in 1888 in a pyramid-shaped mausoleum. A really interesting design. It's really beautiful and one of a number of fascinating pieces of architecture here. But the most famous mausoleum in Greenwood is not for a philanthropist or a civic leader or an artist or a politician. 
It's the mausoleum of a teenage girl named Charlotte Kanda. Her father was Charles Kanda, a Frenchman who moved to New York with his wife Adele to become a school teacher and painter. Charles soon became headmaster at a ladies' boarding and day school on Lafayette Place, where young women were trained in the arts and the decorums of the day. In 1828, their daughter Charlotte Kanda was born. She was to be the couple's only child. Charlotte's life was spent at the school, and as a result, she grew up to be an exceptionally talented young woman. She spoke six languages, and she was both an accomplished musician and artist. In fact, she was often seen in the school hallways making sketches of the world around her. On February 3rd, 1845, Charlotte was celebrating her 17th birthday in a late night on the town with her father and a friend. On Waverly Place, their carriage stopped and Charles escorted the lady friend to the door. And then, quite suddenly, perhaps due to the sound of thunder, the horse leading Charlotte's carriage became spooked and bolted down the street, with Charlotte still inside. The carriage tore down the street with Charlotte screaming for help. At Broadway, the horse suddenly turned, releasing the carriage door, hurling Charlotte violently into the street. She was taken to a local hotel, but unfortunately, she succumbed to her injuries. Some reports suggest Charlotte died in the arms of her father, Charles. Over the years, Greenwood Cemetery would be the eternal resting place of DeWitt Clinton, Boss Tweed, Samuel Morse, Peter Cooper, James Weldon Johnson, Leonard Bernstein, and Jean-Michel Basquiat. But none would be interred in so grand or as expensive a burial monument as Charlotte Candace, a colossal work of marble centered around a likeness of Charlotte in her birthday dress. Adorning the work are small reminders of her life, her musical instruments, and her pet parrots. The monument to the beloved 17-year-old stands 17 feet high and 17 feet deep. Stranger still, the monument was designed by Charlotte herself, taken from a sketch she made for her aunt's burial memorial. Instead, it would be used for Charlotte. Because of the nature of this unusual memorial, visitors began to flock to Greenwood just to see it. In fact, the Charlotte Candon Memorial became one of Brooklyn's most popular attractions well into the 20th century. And nearby lies another more modest grave marker. To Charles Albert Jarrett de la Marie. Charles was Charlotte's fiancé. A year after Candace passing, the heartbroken man ended his own life and now joins her forever here on the grounds of Greenwood Cemetery. But soon, Greenwood Cemetery would not be the only rural cemetery in town. Yes, the, the whole rural cemetery movement would get an enormous boost in 1847 when the New York State Legislature passed the Rural Cemetery Act. The legislature saw this need, right, for new cemeteries and saw that the solution obviously was not on Manhattan Island, but in this undeveloped countryside that surrounded it. And so this act allowed religious organizations and newly formed nonprofit organizations to create new cemeteries that would be exempt from property taxes. And nonprofits being exempt from taxes, I mean, that sounds like a regular practice today, but that was probably quite extraordinary in the 1840s. Yeah, this was totally new, right? The, the legislation was actually part of a bigger package that made forming corporations easier. And, and all of these things were new back in 1847. There were some limitations, however. Casting an eye over at Greenwood, you know, with its massive size, the new act limited the size of the cemeteries initially to 200 acres in any one county. So essentially, any new cemetery that was about to be created could only be less than half the size of what Greenwood Cemetery was. Well, wait, because this is where these new corporations got clever, Greg. 
The act said 200 initially in any one county. So several of them decided to actually purchase huge swaths of land that straddled both Kings and Queens counties. Okay. In fact, one of the very first to open in 1848 was Cypress Hill Cemetery, which is located along the Brooklyn-Queens border. And Cypress Hills today has 225 acres. That would totally explain this entire cemetery belt that you see, the string of cemeteries between Brooklyn and Queens. The border of Kings and Queens County is actually coterminous with today's borders of the boroughs of Queens and Brooklyn. (laughs) Yes, because when this act was passed in 1847, uh, these were not boroughs, of course, but different counties. And and this belt, right, it just stretches right along the borders of those two counties. So Cypress Hills was the very first cemetery to open following the passage of this act? Well, it was the first secular cemetery to be run by one of these new nonprofit corporations. It was dedicated in 1848. It is a beautiful cemetery, very much in this rural cemetery tradition with rolling hills and gorgeous views in all directions. In its own history, the cemetery explains how its developers, quote, searched for a site where richly wooded hills and dells, with here and there a sequestered lake or pond, would enable them to attain the seclusion, privacy, and pensive tranquility of the ideal rural cemetery. The land which they selected was on a promontory with commanding vistas of the ocean, New York, the Long Island countryside, and the distant blue hills of Connecticut. And I, I have to agree, I drove there two days ago, and my jaw dropped when I jumped out of my car at the top of one of those hills. The view is incredible. There was also a storm coming, and I was kind of dizzy with excitement, you know, being in the middle of this rather secluded rural cemetery. Oh, how very Wuthering Heights of you. Oh, you know I was being melodramatic. I was, like, completely wrapped up in the sort of romance of it all. It's just, it's easy to do in a spot like that. In a cloak. In a cloak. I was becloaked. <laughs> and interesting, by the way, that you said you drove there because cars and highways are going to play a very big role along this cemetery belt. Um, and I should add that there are several others from this period including Evergreen Cemetery, which is another non-denominational cemetery. Evergreens was incorporated in 1849, and it's just west of Cypress Hills. It also borders Brooklyn and Queens, and it also has 225 acres. But there are several religious cemeteries around this area as well. Yes, in Episcopal Cemetery, Mount Olivet was incorporated on 72 acres of hilly Masbeth, Queens in 1850. It quickly became open to other religions as well. Two years later, a Lutheran cemetery was laid out on 225 acres in Middle Village, Queens. It would change its name to All Faiths Cemetery, and the list goes on and on. But another cemetery out here predates the passage of the 1847 Rural Cemeteries Act. The previous year, in 1846, the trustees of St. Patrick's Old Cathedral down in Little Italy had started buying up land out in Queens to create their own cemetery, which would be established in 1848 as Calvary Cemetery. And Calvary Cemetery is actually located in western Queens. Yes, in Maspeth and Woodside. Um, It is larger than most of the other cemeteries out here. Today it has 365 acres that are divided into four sections. And the other day, that same drive, I was driving around the first section to open called Old Calvary. This was the first part to open with 71 acres. Um, And it became very busy, especially, as you can imagine, with all of the Catholic immigrants from Ireland and later from Italy who were coming to New York. And their story really becomes very poignant as you walk along these paths and read the gravestones, read the names, and you see all of these Irish and Italian family names. And there was so much traffic back and forth from Manhattan 
that the cemetery ran ferries from the East Village over to Queens. And not to be simplistic here, but Calvary Cemetery has some of the most incredible views. Yeah, and what even makes it more impressive is that when you take in that view, you're pretty much one of the only living people around taking it in. It's it's a really unusual feeling to have that kind of a view all to yourself. So Queens and Brooklyn are seeing all of this cemetery growth thanks to this Rural Cemetery Act. But what's happening in that other future borough that's a little north of here, the Bronx? Well, the Bronx would soon get its own massive non-sectarian cemetery in the form of Woodlawn Cemetery, which was founded in 1863 and covers 400 acres. They actually changed the rules, in fact, to allow for its construction. Much of it is lined with memorials that were designed by America's greatest architects at the time, including Cass Gilbert, Carrera and Hastings, McKimmead White, and countless others. And we have a show episode number 212 about the Bronx before it was a borough, which goes into detail about how Woodlawn was formed and really the extensive list of notable New Yorkers who were buried there, including George M. Cohan, Nellie Bly, Herman Melville, Dorothy Parker, Irving Berlin, Duke Ellington, Macy Woolworth, Jay Gould, Belmonts and Whitney's, and on and on and on. What I find really striking about the development of Woodlawn is around the same time would be the development of the Hart Island Pottersfield, also part of today's Bronx. That's right. Public burials began on Hart Island after the city purchased the island in 1868. By the 1880s, this was the city's main public burial ground. And today, more than 850,000 people have been buried on Hart Island. And last year, we recorded another episode, number 320, on the history of Hart Island. Check that out for the full story. But even as these large rural cemeteries are being developed throughout the region, the population of New York, which was just on Manhattan Island, was growing rapidly. And so were there any burials being done in Manhattan by the late 19th century? Uh, Fewer and fewer. There were still some. In 1852, New York outlawed burials south of 86th Street. Trinity, by the way, before that, had opened up their uptown cemetery in 1842, up at 153rd Street. And that is still active today. But yes, by the mid and late 19th century, the island was filling up with people and developers were increasingly buying up these old cemeteries and redeveloping them. So that meant a massive relocation of thousands of bodies to these new cemeteries. Thousands. This was a massive operation. The New York Times reported that, quote, Hundreds of thousands of bodies were exhumed and taken by cart and boat to new final resting places, sometimes in the dead of night, to limit the number of onlookers. In an article on February 17, 1863, under the headline, Our Fathers, Where Are They?, the Times reported about the exhumation of remains at the old Amity Street Baptist Church at Amity and Worcester Streets. The church, which had relocated up to Madison Avenue, had sold off this old cemetery because they were deeply in debt, and they claimed that it was also hard to protect. So the trustees of the church had given notice that new lots were available for those 1,200 bodies buried here. New lots were available out in Cypress Hills. But the catch was that the families and friends had to pay to get the bodies exhumed on their own, which created complete chaos and frustration. As the Times reported, quote, several of those who visited the ground yesterday were highly exasperated at the action of the church trustees in ordering the removal of their deceased friends, and epithets were applied to that body that were by no means courteous or complimentary. One gentleman pronounced the proceeding disgraceful, unchristian, and barbarous. 
And this is just one example of a situation that played out in former burial grounds up and down the island in the second half of the 19th century. And by 1893, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle reported that there were more than 2 million people buried in Brooklyn and Queens. Which brings us to the rather strange story of A.T. Stewart, New York's most famous retailer in the mid-19th century. Stewart had caused a retail revolution at his Marble Palace down on Broadway behind City Hall in the 1820s, introducing commercial innovations such as fixed prices and sales. And in 1862, he opened another branch just south of Grace Church between 9th and 10th on Broadway, a cast iron beauty that was nicknamed the Iron Palace. He operated mills, he employed tens of thousands of workers, and was even constructing a suburban planned community out on Long Island, Garden City. He had amassed a $50 million fortune by the time that he died in 1876. He was one of the three richest men in America, alongside Cornelius Vanderbilt and William B. Astor. And he was buried in his family vault at St. Mark's in the Bowery. Two years later, on Thursday, November 7th, 1878, the New York Herald screamed, Ghouls at work! A.T. Stewart's body stolen from St. Mark's Churchyard. A profound sensation was created yesterday in the city by the rumor that the body of the deceased millionaire, Alexander T. Stewart, had been desecrated and the remains carried off from the vault in St. Mark's Churchyard, where they have lain since April 23, 1876. Along with the body, Thieves had taken pieces of the coffin, they'd taken velvet trimmings and silver knobs and handles. The Stewart's lawyer immediately offered a $25,000 reward and was soon contacted by a third party representing the alleged robbers, who wanted 10 times that amount, $250,000, and they sent along a piece of the silver from the coffin as proof of the authenticity of their claim. The amount was too much for Stewart's widow Cornelia, but the next year in 1879, as the story dragged on, Cornelia instead offered them $20,000, which was accepted, and a handoff agreed upon along a dark country road in Westchester County at 3 o'clock in the morning, with the Stewart's money handed over to a masked man by A.T. Stewart's grand-nephew, who in return received a bag full of bones. According to a close source, his body was then kept in a secret location at the Marble Palace on Lower Broadway. During this time, Cornelia, Mrs. Stewart, was funding the construction of the Gothic Cathedral of the Incarnation, an Episcopal cathedral in Garden City, in her husband's honor. And once that cathedral was nearing completion in 1884, A.T. Stewart's body was reinterred in the cathedral's crypt, but this time, locked inside forever. Tom, here is a fascinating fact for you, okay? By the start of the 20th century, okay, by the year 1900, most of the active cemeteries in New York City today, most of them were already in business. Those rural cemeteries in Queens and Brooklyn, which had once been built in less populated areas, would now become a part of Greater New York in the consolidation of 1898. Now, as in the early 19th century, you would begin to again have larger populations living up next to the borders of these massive cemeteries. But despite the fact that proximity to acres of gravestones would sometimes lower property values, this did not stop the development of such communities as Ridgewood, Glendale, and Woodhaven. These once rural cemeteries, they're also becoming more integrated into the everyday life of New Yorkers. And there's really no clearer sign of that than the relationship between cemeteries and highways. With the rise of mass automobile usage in the 1920s, this meant that not even grave sites were sacred. 
In fact, during the 1920s, the city wished to build a brand new parkway through the cemetery belt itself. But certainly they wouldn't have the nerve to run a parkway through a cemetery. (laughs) Oh, they could, and they did. Although the eventual parkway that was designed is curvier and much more roundabout in nature to avoid disturbing too many grave sites. But yes, hundreds of graves had to be moved in the early 1930s in a couple cemeteries, and others lost land due to condemnation. And so the first mile of what was once called the Interborough Parkway was dedicated on April 14th, 1935, with Yankee star Babe Ruth helping to open the roadway alongside Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia and Parks Commissioner Robert Moses. Now, today, of course, this parkway is named for a different baseball player who is buried in Cypress Hill Cemetery, which the parkway actually divides. Can you guess who that is? I believe that would be Jackie Robinson. Yes, the Jackie Robinson Parkway. I was just driving on it, and it's really notable that you do pass right next to Tombstones and Mausoleum. And driving along there, I couldn't help but imagine how the construction of the roadway must have really disturbed the peaceful atmosphere that one hopes to find in a cemetery. Well, generally speaking, I would say that New York cemeteries were entering an overall less peaceful phase of existence here in the mid-20th century, as was the city in general, of course. Many cemeteries were in financial decline, and most of them were running out of space. And let's not forget that by the mid and late 20th century, cremation emerged as an alternative to burials. And actually today, many cemeteries have crematoriums. But even with cremation as an option, many New York cemeteries themselves are overcrowded. And it can also be very costly Many cemeteries have actually stopped taking new burials entirely. They've become these islands of monuments in the city, frozen in time. Other active cemeteries have had to balance other new responsibilities. Uh, Many, like Greenwood Cemetery and Woodlawn, are no longer just active sites for new burials, but they've also become historical sites in themselves, you know, sometimes considered even repositories of great art. These places hold personal stories of grief and mourning for all of us, but they've also become a kind of collective memorial. You know, if we want to feel connected to, say, Henry Houdini, for instance, we go to the Machpelah Cemetery in Queens in the cemetery belt. Or if you want to visit the resting place of an icon like Billie Holiday... You can go to St. Raymond's in the Bronx. If you want to visit Mae West, she's at Cypress Hills. And hey, over at Old Trinity Churchyard, you'll find the final resting place of Alexander Hamilton. But you can imagine that the cemeteries here in Manhattan face even greater challenges in some ways because because of the very value of the land. If this was an issue in the mid-19th century, you can imagine that those real estate pressures have only intensified since then. Well, luckily, landmarking has saved some of these oldest sites. For instance, the Trinity Churchyard and First Shereath Israel burial ground was protected in 1965. Then you had St. Paul's Churchyard in 1966. And then those two marble cemeteries in the East Village were also protected in 1969. In particular, Trinity and St. Paul have become lower Manhattan tourist attractions. Time machines from the past compared to the World Trade Center site and the skyscrapers of the financial district, which dwarf them. And by the way, there are other landmarked burial grounds like throughout the five boroughs, most from the Dutch and colonial period. But for every landmarked burial ground in New York, there are countless sites that have been wiped off the map and forgotten such as that former public burial ground with all the victims of yellow fever and cholera located on the site of today's Washington Square Park. Yeah, it's it's really unknown how many bodies may continue to lie under 
one of New York's most vibrant parks here in the village. Over the years, dozens have actually been found, including two 19th century burial vaults with a dozen bodies in wooden coffins, which was discovered by water main workers in 2015. And earlier this year, in 2021, the Parks Department reinterred bodies beneath the ground at Washington Square Park. Wait, they they reburied the bodies under the park? Yeah. This project was overseen, in fact, by experts at the Landmarks Preservation Commission and Greenwood Cemetery. Actually, the burial vaults which were discovered were actually left untouched. So, in essence, Washington Square Park remains a site for burials today. But these were not the only burials left behind. In fact, as we mentioned earlier, not only were some burial grounds forgotten, they were unceremoniously built over, excavated, and in some cases, the burials desecrated. Now flash forward to the year 1991. And work began on the construction of the Ted Weiss Federal Building, today the home of several federal agencies, in an area just north of City Hall. In October of 1991, it was revealed that workers had come upon a surprising discovery. From the New York Times, quote, Churning through the stillness of centuries, a trowel-by-trowel probe has yielded one of the oldest remnants of a black community in New York City, a colonial-era cemetery that was then at the most desolate edge of town. In total, the remains of 419 men, women, and children were discovered here, half of whom were children under the age of 12 years old. During further excavation the following year, some of the graves were uprooted by construction workers, leading to an extraordinary outcry by prominent black leaders and preservation groups alike. The site was quickly deemed an important historical discovery and placed on the National Register of Historic Places. The building was quickly redesigned with space allocated for a new memorial to those buried here. On October 4, 2003, the remains of the 419 individuals were returned to the site of the burial ground. Seven crypts containing coffins were then lowered into the ground. Today, the location of those remains is marked by seven earthen mounds, where you will often find flowers left by visitors. Four years later, on October 5th, 2007, the African Burial Ground National Monument was dedicated on the site of this once forgotten place, only two blocks north of City Hall Park. The granite monument stands 25 feet tall, representing the distance under the ground the bodies were discovered. Sunken into the ground is a circular chamber, a map of the Atlantic Ocean, and a ring of sacred and religious symbols. The monument serves as a reminder to New York's role in the American slave trade, but also reminding us of all the secrets that the city wished to forget. According to writer Christopher Paul Moore, quote, In the 20th century, the area where the African burial ground is located developed as New York's government center. During these years, the existence of the African burial ground, though recorded on old maps, was effectively forgotten. Unmarked beneath the bluestone sidewalk, thousands walk by or over the burials daily, unaware that much of the cemetery still exists under the neighborhood sidewalks, roadbeds, and buildings. So the African Burial Ground has a marvelous visitor center, which I highly recommend visiting to learn about the burial ground and the early lives of black New Yorkers. Now, up until just recently, it has been closed due to the pandemic. But yesterday, Tom, I stopped by the burial ground, observed a ceremony marking the opening of the monument, and a helpful park ranger gave me the scoop that the visitor center will be opening later this month, which is great. Wonderful. On our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, we'll have some images of some of these historic places. And we actually encourage you to visit many of them yourself because there's so much history in each one of them. And each one tells a very different story about New York City history. 
Just remember to be respectful and reverent, as most of these cemeteries that we mentioned in the show are still active cemeteries. A huge thank you to those who have joined us on Patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. With your small monthly contributions, Greg and I are able to make the Bowery Boys our full-time jobs and able to produce a new show every two weeks. As a token of our thanks, of course, we record the Bowery Boys Movie Club, in which we discuss the ins and outs of films that were shot in and around New York City, some of which were even shot in New York City cemeteries. We've recently added a new episode to the movie club on the 1970s action-packed thriller, The French Connection. So our patrons will receive that show and many other audio goodies. Uh, So join everyone over there. They're having a great time on our Patreon page. You'll be in great company. Recent Patreon members include Jason L., Morgan S., Lee A., Cameron B., and Noel B. from New York, Meredith R. from Massachusetts, Stephen J. from Virginia, Sandra K. from Washington, and Bertram E. from California. For more information, just head over to our page, patreon.com slash Boys. And we're so happy that you can also now join our guides out in the streets for a Bowery Boys walk around town. We have all kinds of walking tours up Fifth Avenue, through Central Park, through the village, the West Village, out in Queens at the World's Fair, the Lower East Side, and more. We're also doing private group tours, including for school groups and New York businesses who are looking for new fun ways to engage their employees in the city's history. Head over to Bowery Boys Walks for more information. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost.